Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Happy Easter, everybody. I am so glad that you're joining us for this service. I don't know what your plans are later today uh, after church. I don't know if you're going to have lunch inside, you're going to have lunch outside, you might take a nap. I, I have no idea. But if you are in need of some cool icebreakers for your friends and your family that you might be seeing today, I have some good ones. So Hopefully you have a pen and paper, you can write these down. Here are some random facts to throw at people later today. Number one, before the 17th century, almost all cultivated carrots were purple. I bet you didn't know that. Number two, most American car horns honk in the key of F. Number three, British Army uniform regulations required every soldier to have a mustache from 1860 to 1916. Wow. Number four, McDonald's once made bubblegum flavored broccoli. I don't know why, I don't know who wanted that, but they did it. Number five, armadillo shells are bulletproof. Don't know how we figured that one out, but apparently that is true. Armed with these, you are going to crush your Easter conversations today. Or maybe not, I don't know. Some of them weren't that good, honestly. And the armadillo one, I, I still don't really believe, so don't test that out. Just don't worry about it. But I thought these were at least interesting, though. You know, they kind of make you go, huh, wow. You probably did, too. At least one of them probably made you chuckle a little bit or made you think, well, that's interesting. But here's what's so interesting about interesting facts. By themselves, they have absolutely no impact on your life whatsoever. Like, not one of those five things that I just shared is going to change what you think about, how you live, the decisions you make, what you care about, nothing. On the other hand, there are facts in the world that change everything. Think about just a few the fact that time is relative, the fact that the earth revolves around the sun, the fact that a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Life was never the same after those facts 
were discovered. I mean, that list could go on and on. Why do I say all of that? Well, Christianity is based on that kind of fact. Not the first kind of fact, but the second kind, the one that changes everything, world-changing fact. And I don't know how familiar you may be with this whole church stuff right now. Maybe you, you grew up in the church or around church culture. Maybe you didn't. Uh, either way, if you boil this whole thing down, this whole church thing down, this whole Christianity thing down, the singing and the praying and the talking and the communion, right? All that stuff, you boil it all down. Why do we do all this? It boils down to one basic fact. And actually, a sociologist, Peter Berger, put it the best. He was a sociologist of the 20th century. Uh, he was a, a leading figure in his field. and He put it this way when he described Christianity in particular. He said, Christianity is a person stands on a box and declares he is risen. And the congregation looking up responds, he is risen indeed. That is the essence of Christianity. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the bedrock non-negotiable of the Christian faith. No other world religion, as far as I can tell, has so closely anchored its existence and its believability, its, its coherence, to an historical fact as strongly as Christianity has. And this fact has fascinated people and has converted people and changed people from all over the world. In cultures where they, there are assumptions that there are many gods, where everything is a god, or where there are no gods at all, there's only the physical universe, the fact of the resurrection has changed people, and the fact of the resurrection should move us like that today. And that's what I'm hoping happens for us. It is not a fact that is interesting that we look at for uh, 30 minutes, and then we put it away like, huh, that was, that was really interesting. It should change us. And Luke, who wrote our gospel text this morning, actually shows us how that happens. He actually will show us the very first followers of Jesus being confronted by the fact of the resurrection for the very first time. And he'll show us how it moved them and how it can move us in three specific ways. Okay, So if you have a Bible near you, turn to Luke 24. Luke is the third book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 24. We just read these verses a few moments ago, the first few verses. Some of Jesus' disciples, who happened to be women, saw where Jesus' body was laid on Friday. So Jesus has been crucified. He died. They buried him on Friday. The women return early on Sunday morning to prepare his body for burial. This was an important part uh, of the burial ceremony, but they weren't able to complete it on Friday. So they come back on Sunday. They get to the tomb, and Jesus' body is gone. The stone is rolled away and the body is gone. The tomb is completely empty. Luke tells us that there are two angels waiting for the women and they tell them, Jesus is alive. Why are you looking for him here? He's been telling you this the whole time, that he would rise on the third day. And the women, confronted by this, right, they run back all the way to the disciples where they're hiding. The 11 disciples specifically called by Jesus. And there are others who had followed him who are with them. And they say, Jesus is alive. 
But look at me with verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle talk. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. If you've ever found yourself skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus, as many people do, you are in really, really good company. The first followers of Jesus didn't, who knew him best, they were skeptical about this. They, in fact, when they heard this report from the women, as Luke tells you, they thought it was nonsense, idle talk. They didn't believe it. Now, why was that? Well, just like today, we have preconceived biases that keep us from receiving or accepting new information. First, there was the bias toward women. And in general, in the ancient world, the word of a man was stronger than the word of a woman. Which, of course, is why Jesus reveals his resurrection first to women, because Jesus is always flipping our bias on its head. It's just what he does. Even so, for the male disciples, it was probably hard for them to believe that these women were not simply being hysterical. This is idle talk. This didn't really happen. But also, they had a bias against resurrection because dead people stay dead. We know that. They knew that. This was not commonplace for them. But Peter, who won't, won't he won't let his bias stop him from exploring. So verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I didn't want us to miss that. Marveling. He runs to the tomb, and it's truly empty. Jesus' body is gone. And Luke tells us that he marveled. He marveled. And this is the first movement of the fact of Easter, is that Easter moves us from doubt to marvel. Now, this word marvel is not full-fledged belief. It's more like wonder or fascination. It's, it's that feeling that you get when something confuses you or defies explanation or expectation, but you have to know the answer why. You can't walk away. That's the sense that Peter got as he walked away from that tomb. He's like, I don't know how to explain that. This doesn't add up to me. And it's the empty tomb, notice, in particular that moves him. And it should move us too. Here's why. You know, the empty tomb is one of the most indisputable facts we have from ancient history. Even the most skeptical scholars of the New Testament affirm that the tomb was empty on Easter morning. And here's why. First, the women. I, I mentioned the stigma against women in the ancient world before. Uh, but if you were going to make up a story, if you're going to make up a religion based on this story, the resurrection of Jesus, you would not have women be the first messengers for the ancient audience who you were writing to. You just wouldn't do it. Again, that was an immediate red flag for the ancient reader. In fact, we know that because some of the earliest skeptics and writers against Christianity would point to that as a problem. They would say, well, the first witnesses to this were women, therefore this isn't credible. Second, the failure of the disciples, frankly, all throughout the Gospels, okay, from beginning to end, but also here to believe in Jesus is not a great PR moment for the faith, right? 
If you were making this up, you would have the disciples believe right away, and you would, and then they get to work changing the world. You, they are the, the new face of the organization called Christianity. Why would you start off with this absolute failure of faith? The only reason you would include details like these is if they are true. Third, we know that very early on, the main argument against the resurrection of Jesus was that the disciples must have stolen the body, okay? You don't see it as clearly here in Luke, but in the book of Matthew, which is another gospel, we see that the Jewish leaders, when they are confronted by the empty tomb, they begin spreading the rumor that the disciples stole the body. Matthew addresses that rumor in his gospel, saying, that's not true. Which means that, you know, give or take 30 years after the events in question, just for ancient history, that's really, really close. No one was arguing that Jesus' body was in the tomb. Nobody. If the body were still there, that is what everybody would be saying. They would say, hey, look, the tomb wasn't empty. This is all made up. Jesus' body is right here. Look. But no one's saying that. What we find is that the earliest arguments against the resurrection granted that the tomb was found empty on Easter morning. That's a big deal. That means you cannot just say, well, they made this up and the whole thing is a farce because that tomb was empty and you need an explanation for that. You can't just dismiss that. Now, that may not make you a believer or follower of Jesus, but it should lead to marvel as I've defined it because that's hard to explain. You can't just walk away from that or not care. It's it's a fact that demands examination, that demands thought, maybe even investigation. It should move us from doubt or indifference to something like marvel. Like how do, how do I explain that? What, what does that mean? But Luke isn't yet done. Luke's, Luke's Easter story is supposed to move us again. So Luke tells us that on the same day, so this is still Easter Sunday, two disciples have left Jerusalem and they're walking to a town called Emmaus, which is just down the road from Jerusalem. And then in verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept shut from recognizing him. So Jesus just shows up and starts walking with them. And again, there's no explanation here, but somehow he is able to hide his identity from these two. He withholds his identity, at least for just a little while. So Jesus is now walking with these two disciples And he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And Cleopas, so Luke names Cleopas, one of the two basically says, well, where in the world have you been, buddy? Like, everybody knows what's going on. Jesus uh, was this famous prophetic preacher and teacher and healer. Uh, He was crucified three days ago. He was supposed to come and, and save Israel, but now we don't know what's going on. You have to love the irony here, right? The disciples explaining to Jesus what happened to Jesus. And then Cleopas tells him everything that has happened since then. He says there was this empty tomb and the women came and you know, the text we just looked at. But they still don't get it. They still don't believe. They're, they're just confused and frankly disappointed. So Jesus says this, this is verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning 
himself. He walks through the entire Old Testament and shows these disciples how they all testify to the Messiah. He begins to show them that for the whole, the whole, for thousands of years, the Bible has said that Christ must suffer and die and rise on the third day. That was always the plan. Now, this had to be mind-blowing for these two disciples because literally no one taught that Messiah would die and rise again at this time. Nobody. Now, the disciples who by now have, have got to be wondering, who is this guy? Why does he know so much? They invite him to stay the night because traveling alone at night was dangerous and they're, they're at their destination, but he isn't. And they say, stay, stay, stay with us. And so they begin a meal together. Interestingly, the disciples should be playing host, but here Jesus prays and breaks the bread. This is verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now the two, they get up immediately and they run back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. They recognize Jesus. They saw the risen Jesus. They have moved again. This time from marvel to faith. Now they still have questions, but not about if Jesus is alive. Now they know. They know. Notice with me here just a few things. First, when Jesus meets these two on the road, they're depressed and they're disappointed. Jesus was supposed to save Israel. He's supposed to redeem Israel, but now that dream is dead. Even the empty tomb was not enough to change their minds about that. They were disappointed. They and their fellow Jewish disciples were not expecting a resurrected Messiah. In his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, N.T. Wright, painstakingly makes this really important point. The Jews and the disciples would never have made this up because they had absolutely no category for it. The idea of a crucified, resurrected Messiah was completely foreign to Jewish thought at the time. Nobody taught that. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus prove it. They can't believe what they're hearing either. And in fact, if you were to read Luke's second volume, which is called the book of Acts, you would see how difficult it was for the Jews to accept this message of a crucified and risen Messiah because they'd never thought about it before. It made no sense to them. But more importantly even than that, the more time these disciples spent with Jesus on the road, the more their hearts burned. They say this after the fact in verse 32, did our hearts not burn within us when we were with him on the road? The idea here is that Jesus, his presence, his teaching, was changing them even before they knew it was him. And it was in their friendship with him, it was in their proximity to him, eating together, that they actually saw who he was. And Luke is inviting us to do the same thing, to walk the Emmaus road with Jesus. In fact, Luke, for his, his, his original readers, he's literally asking you to go find Cleopas, the disciple, and ask him about this story. That's why his name is included, right? He, Luke didn't need to put his name for the story to make sense, but he does. This is an ancient footnote. Luke is telling you, I talked to Cleopas and you can too. But even for us today, Luke is saying that if we want to move from marvel to faith in Jesus, we need to get close to him. We need to get close to him. We need to open ourselves up to the possibility of his resurrection, that this is real, even if we're doubting and disappointed, as these disciples were. 
Notice even the disciples must be taught how to read the Bible and how to encounter the risen Jesus in in Scripture and in fellowship with other believers with Him. Luke is showing us that the primary context where we meet with Jesus is in the church community. That's where we move from marvel to faith. Not always, but most of the time. We need a community around us to show us the way. These basic elements here, okay, just look, study of the word, hospitality, welcoming, reflection on Jesus, breaking bread together, okay, all of those happen in the church. There's a reason we do those things when we gather together. These open us up to the voice and presence of Jesus in unique ways. And if you are at all interested in moving from marvel to faith, this Easter story shows you how. Arguments for the resurrection are helpful, and I've shared some of those along the way, but they will only get you so far. At some point, you must walk with Jesus. You must study his word. You must know his people if you're ever to have your eyes and heart opened. When that happens, the last move is possible. So we left the two disciples there running back to Jerusalem to tell everybody what they've now seen. And in the middle of their story, when they're telling everyone, we saw Jesus, Jesus shows up right in their midst with everybody, right there in the middle of the room. And he says in verse 36, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me, see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. They still aren't totally convinced. They're still doubting. Jesus mentions that, again, because no one would have predicted this. And be honest with yourself. You'd be freaked out, too, if Jesus just appeared in the middle of the room. So he shows them his scars. He says, look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at my feet. And he even uh, eats a fish just to prove, hey, everyone, it's really me. and I'm not a ghost because I, I eat things. Then he tells all the disciples this in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He teaches them again. And and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Then Jesus leads them out of the city of Jerusalem to the town of Bethany, and he blesses them. This is verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is how Luke's gospel ends. It ends in worship of Jesus. And this is the last move Easter can make in your life and mine, is that Easter moves us from faith to worship. Worship. Two things happen here at the end that Luke wants us to see. First, remember the Jews who are staunch monotheists, meaning they worship one God and nobody else. And to do otherwise was unthinkable. It was like, it was the worst thing you could do. But they worship Jesus. There is no more powerful indicator of how the disciples looked at Jesus from here on out than that. They believe he is divine and worthy of worship. 
Second, Jesus promises before he leaves a movement of people from all nations who will worship him and find forgiveness and grace in him and who will proclaim him all over the world. Now remember, you're looking at that 2,000 years later. When Jesus says this, he's saying it to what? A handful of people? Maybe 20, 50, I don't know. In Roman-occupied Palestine 2,000 years ago, these people are nobodies at this time. Nobodies. And even when Luke writes this down, which let's say is 30 years later, there are what, maybe a few thousand Jesus followers on the entire planet? But look today, Jesus was right. On this day, on Easter Sunday, all over the world, in almost every conceivable tongue, tribe, and nation, we estimate that about 2.3 billion people will worship Jesus and proclaim their allegiance to him. 2.3 billion. How in the world do you explain that? And again, it's not like this is primarily in one culture or one ethnicity, like most world religions are. They're, they're, they dominate one part of the world. This is everywhere. This, this picture shows Christians per million all over the world. You will not find a graph like this for any other religious group. It just doesn't exist. Christianity stands alone in its global impact, just as Jesus predicted. And these disciples who move from faith in Jesus to worship, the disciples in our story, and these, these disciples in our church and all over the world are doing more than gathering on Sundays and more than singing songs, even though those are great things. And this year taught me to never take them for granted. Hopefully it taught you the same thing. But they've also submitted their entire lives to Jesus, every part of themselves, their time, their money, their safety, their sexuality, their identity, their work, their rest, their relationships. Every part of life becomes more than it was. It becomes worship to Jesus, the eternal reigning risen king. That's the last move. Now, why did they do it? Why do they do it? And why, why would you do it? The answer is joy. That's the word Luke uses. They worship with great joy. Luke is offering this Easter faith to you, saying if you want joy, it's right here. This is where you will find it. Not fleeting pleasure, not distraction, not entertainment, joy. You'll find it here. Joy in knowing that you are loved and forgiven in Jesus. Joy in belonging to Jesus and his people. Joy in trusting that the king reigns, that nothing is outside of his control, that there's no crisis too big and there's no detail too small that is beyond his power, his purpose, or his compassion. That kind of joy is available to you now. Now, I don't know how all of this is striking you today. We all arrived this morning or whenever you're watching this with a million things to think about, a million things to feel. It may have been a fight, frankly, just to get yourself to this service at all. I, I get it. That, that's part of it. But I implore you, okay, if you hear anything, hear this. Before you worry about what you're going to eat when you turn off this video, before you go through the checklist in your mind of what you need to do to get your house ready or the calls you need to make or the work you need to do, 
before you wrap a bow on this time with the idea that, wow, that was a really good service, or even, wow, that was not a very good service, I don't know, just stop, stop. Let Easter move you. Let it move you. Let it move you from what you think you already know to what you may have missed. Let it move you from the disappointment and the isolation of this past year to an encounter, to a conversation with Jesus. Let it change your life from a mundane string of days, which if we're honest, we all know is headed toward an inevitable decay and death, to a mission in life unlike any other, and the promise that Jesus' resurrection will be yours. There's a joy found in, in all of that that you have to see to believe.